Part two, sections one through five of A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. Part two, section one of the passion caused by the sublime. The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended, with some degree of horror. Footnote. Part 1, sections 3, 4, 7. End footnote. In this case the mind is so entirely filled with its object that it cannot entertain any other, nor by consequence reason on that object which employs it. Hence arises the great power of the sublime that, far from being produced by them, it anticipates our reasonings and hurries us on by an irresistible force. Astonishment, as I have said, is the effect of the sublime in its highest degree, the inferior effects are admiration, reverence, and respect. Section 2. Terror. No passion so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. Footnote. Part 4, sections 3, 4, 5, 6. End footnote. For fear, being an apprehension of pain or death, it operates in a manner that resembles actual pain. Whatever, therefore, is terrible with regard to sight is sublime, too. Whether this cause of terror be endued with greatness of dimensions or not. For it is impossible to look on anything as trifling or contemptible that may be dangerous. There are many animals who, though far from being large, are yet capable of raising ideas of the sublime, because they are considered as objects of terror, as serpents and poisonous animals of almost all kinds. And to things of great dimensions, if we annex an adventitious idea of terror, they become without comparison greater. A level plain of a vast extent on land is certainly no mean idea. The prospect of such a plain may be as extensive as a prospect of the ocean. But can it ever fill the mind with anything so great as the ocean itself? This is owing to several causes, but it is owing to none more than this, that the ocean is an object of no small terror. Indeed, terror is in all cases whatsoever, either more openly or latently, the ruling principle of the sublime. Several languages bear a strong testimony to the affinity of these ideas. They frequently use the same word to signify indifferently the modes of astonishment or admiration and those of terror. Thombos is in Greek either fear or wonder. Danos is terrible or respectable. Ahidio, to reverence or to fear. Verior in Latin is what ahidio is in Greek. The Romans used the verb stupeo, a term which strongly marks the state of an astonished mind, 
to express the effect either of simple fear or of astonishment. The word atonitus, thunderstruck, is equally expressive of the alliance of these ideas. And do not the French étonnement and the English astonishment and amazement point out as clearly the kindred emotions which attend fear and wonder? They who have a more general knowledge of languages could produce, I make no doubt, many other and equally striking examples. Section 3. Obscurity. To make anything very terrible, obscurity, footnote, part 4, section 14, 15, 16, end footnote, seems in general to be necessary when we know the full extent of any danger when we can accustom our eyes to it a great deal of the apprehension vanishes every one will be sensible of this who considers how greatly night adds to our dread in all cases of danger and how much the notions of ghosts and goblins of which none can form clear ideas affect minds which give credit to the popular tales concerning such sorts of beings those despotic governments which are founded on the passions of men, and principally upon the passion of fear, keep their chief as much as may be from the public eye. The policy has been the same in many cases of religion. Almost all the heathen temples were dark. Even in the barbarous temples of the Americans at this day, they keep their idol in a dark part of the hut, which is consecrated to his worship. For this purpose, too, the Druids performed all their ceremonies in the bosom of the darkest woods, and in the shade of the oldest and most spreading oaks. No person seems better to have understood the secret of heightening, or of setting terrible things, if I may use the expression, in their strongest light, by the force of a judicious obscurity than Milton. His description of death in the second book is admirably studied. It is astonishing with what a gloomy pomp, with what a significant and expressive uncertainty of strokes and coloring, he has finished the portrait of the King of Terrors. The other shape, if shape it might be called that shape had none, distinguishable in member, joint, or limb, or substance might be called that shadow seemed, for each seemed either black he stood as night, fierce as ten furies, terrible as hell, and shook a deadly dart, what seemed his head, the likeness of a kingly crown had on. In this description all is dark, uncertain, confused, terrible, and sublime to the last degree. Section 4. Of the difference between clearness and obscurity with regard to the passions. It is one thing to make an idea clear, and another to make it affecting to the imagination. If I make a drawing of a palace, or a temple, or a landscape, I present a very clear idea of those objects. But then, allowing for the effect of imitation which is something, my picture can at most affect only as the palace, temple, or landscape would have affected in the reality. On the other hand, the most lively and spirited verbal description I can give raises a very obscure and imperfect idea of such objects. 
but then it is in my power to raise a stronger emotion by the description than I could do by the best painting. This experience constantly evinces the proper manner of conveying the affections of the mind from one to another is by words. There is a great insufficiency in all other methods of communication, and so far is a clearness of imagery from being absolutely necessary to an influence upon the passions, that they may be considerably operated upon without presenting any image at all, by certain sounds adapted to that purpose, of which we have a sufficient proof in the acknowledged and powerful effects of instrumental music. In reality, a great clearness helps but little toward affecting the passions, as it is in some sort an enemy to all enthusiasms whatsoever. Section 4. The same subject continued. There are two verses in Horace's Art of Poetry that seem to contradict this opinion, for which reason I shall take a little more pains in clearing it up. The verses are, Segnius irritant animos demissa per ares, quamque sunt oclius subjecta fidelibus. On this point the Abbe Dubois founds a criticism, wherein he gives painting the preference to poetry in the article of moving the passions, principally on account of the greater clearness of the ideas it represents. I believe this excellent judge was led into this mistake, if it be a mistake, by his system, to which he found it more conformable than I imagine it will be found to experience. I know several who admire and love painting, and yet who regard the objects of their admiration in that art with coolness enough in comparison of that warmth with which they are animated by affecting pieces of poetry or rhetoric. Among the common sort of people I never could perceive that painting had much influence on their passions. It is true that the best sorts of painting, as well as the best sorts of poetry, are not much understood in that sphere, but it is most certain that their passions are very strongly roused by a fanatic preacher, or by the ballads of Chevy Chase, or the children in the wood, and by other little popular poems and tales that are current in that rank of life. I do not know of any paintings, bad or good, that produce the same effect. So that poetry, with all its obscurity, has a more general as well as a more powerful dominion over the passions than the other art. And I think there are reasons in nature why the obscure idea, when properly conveyed, should be more affecting than the clear. It is our ignorance of things that causes all our admiration, and chiefly excites our passions. Knowledge and acquaintance make the most striking causes affect but little. It is thus with the vulgar, and all men are as the vulgar in what they do not understand. The ideas of eternity and infinity are among the most affecting we have, and yet perhaps there is nothing of which we really understand so little as of infinity and eternity. 
we do not anywhere meet a more sublime description than this justly celebrated one of Milton, wherein he gives the portrait of Satan with a dignity so suitable to the subject. He above the rest, in shape and gesture proudly eminent, stood like a tower, his form had yet not lost, all her original brightness, nor appeared, less than archangel ruined, and the excess of glory obscured as when the sun new risen, looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams or from behind the moon, in dim eclipse disastrous twilight sheds, on half the nations and with fear of change perplexes monarchs. Here is a very noble picture, and in what does this poetical picture consist? In images of a tower and archangel, the sun rising through mists or in an eclipse, the ruin of monarchs and the revolutions of kingdoms. The mind is hurried out of itself by a crowd of great and confused images, which affect because they are crowded and confused. For separate them, and you lose much of the greatness, and join them, and you infallibly lose the clearness. The images raised by poetry are always of this obscure kind, though in general the effects of poetry are by no means to be attributed to the images it raises, which point we shall examine more at large hereafter. Footnote. Part 5. End footnote. But painting, when we have allowed for the pleasure of imitation, can only affect simply by the images it presents, and even in painting a judicious obscurity in some things contributes to the effect of the picture, because the images in painting are exactly similar to those in nature, and in nature dark, confused, uncertain images have a greater power on the fancy to form the grander passions than those have which are more clear and determinate but where and when this observation may be applied to practice, and how far it shall be extended, will be better deduced from the nature of the subject and from the occasion than from any rules that can be given. I am sensible that this idea has met with opposition, and is likely still to be rejected by several. But let it be considered that hardly anything can strike the mind with its greatness which does not make some sort of approach toward infinity, which nothing can do whilst we are able to perceive its bounds. But to see an object distinctly, and to perceive its bounds, is one and the same thing. A clear idea is therefore another name for a little idea. There is a passage in the book of Job amazingly sublime, and this sublimity is principally due to the terrible uncertainty of the thing described. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up, it stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice. Shall mortal man be more just than God? We are first prepared with the utmost solemnity for the vision. 
we are first terrified before we are let even into the obscure cause of our emotion. But when this grand cause of terror makes its appearance, what is it? Is it not wrapped up in the shades of its own incomprehensible darkness, more awful, more striking, more terrible than the liveliest description, than the clearest painting could possibly represent it? When painters have attempted to give us clear representations of these very fanciful and terrible ideas, they have, I think, almost always failed, insomuch that I have been at a loss in all the pictures I have seen of hell to determine whether the painter did not intend something ludicrous. Several painters have handled a subject of this kind with a view of assembling as many horrid phantoms as their imagination could suggest. But all the designs I have chanced to meet of the temptations of St. Antony were rather a sort of odd wild grotesques than anything capable of producing a serious passion. In all these subjects poetry is very happy. Its apparitions, its chimeras, its harpies, its allegorical figures are grand and affecting, and though Virgil's fame and Homer's discord are obscure, they are magnificent figures. These figures in painting would be clear enough, but I fear they might become ridiculous. Section 5. Power. Besides those things which directly suggest the idea of danger, and those which produce a similar effect from a mechanical cause, I know of nothing sublime which is not some modification of power, and this branch rises as naturally as the other two branches from terror, the common stock of everything that is sublime. The idea of power at first view seems of the class of those indifferent ones which may equally belong to pain or to pleasure. But in reality, the affection arising from the idea of vast power is extremely remote from that neutral character. For first, we must remember, footnote, part one, section seven, end footnote that the idea of pain, in its highest degree, is much stronger than the highest degree of pleasure, and that it preserves the same superiority through all the subordinate gradations. From hence it is that where the chances for equal degrees of suffering or enjoyment are in any sort equal, the idea of the suffering must always be prevalent. And indeed the ideas of pain, and above all of death, are so very affecting that whilst we remain in the presence of whatever is supposed to have the power of inflicting either, it is impossible to be perfectly free from terror. Again, we know by experience that for the enjoyment of pleasure, no great efforts of power are at all necessary. Nay, we know that such efforts would go a great way towards destroying our satisfaction, for pleasure must be stolen and not forced upon us. Pleasure follows the will, and therefore we are generally affected with it by many things of a force greatly inferior to our own. But pain is always inflicted by a power in some way superior, because we never submit to pain willingly, so that strength, violence, pain, and terror are ideas that rush in upon the mind together. 
Look at a man or any other animal of prodigious strength, and what is your idea before reflection? Is it that this strength will be subservient to you, to your ease, to your pleasure, to your interest in any sense? No. The emotion you feel is, lest this enormous strength should be employed to the purposes of... Footnote. Vide Part 3, Section 21. End footnote. Repine and destruction. That power derives all its sublimity from the terror with which it is generally accompanied will appear evidently from its effect in the very few cases in which it may be possible to strip a considerable degree of strength of its ability to hurt. When you do this, you spoil it of everything sublime, and it immediately becomes contemptible. An ox is a creature of vast strength, but he is an innocent creature, extremely serviceable, and not at all dangerous, for which reason the idea of an ox is by no means grand. A bull is strong too, but his strength is of another kind, often very destructive, seldom, at least amongst us, of any use in our business. The idea of a bull is therefore great, and it has frequently a place in sublime descriptions and elevating comparisons. Let us look at another strong animal, in the two distinct lights in which we may consider him. The horse, in the light of a useful beast, fit for the plough, the road, the draught, in every social useful light, the horse has nothing sublime. But is it thus that we are affected with him, whose neck is clothed with thunder, the glory of whose nostrils is terrible, who swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage, neither believeth that it is the sound of the trumpet? In this description, the useful character of the horse entirely disappears, and the terrible and sublime blaze out together. We have continually about us animals of a strength that is considerable, but not pernicious. Amongst these we never look for the sublime, it comes upon us in the gloomy forest, and in the howling wilderness, in the form of the lion, the tiger, the panther, or rhinoceros. Whenever strength is only useful and employed for our benefit or our pleasure, then it is never sublime. For nothing can act agreeably to us that does not act in conformity to our will. But to act agreeably to our will, it must be subject to us, and therefore can never be the cause of a grand and commanding conception. The description of the wild ass in Job is worked up into no small sublimity, merely by insisting on his freedom, and his setting mankind at defiance. Otherwise, the description of such an animal could have had nothing noble in it. Who hath loosed, says he, the bands of the wild ass, whose house I have made the wilderness, and the barren land his dwellings? He scorneth the multitude of the city, neither regardeth he the voice of the driver, the range of the mountains in his pasture. The magnificent description of the unicorn and of Leviathan in the same book is full of the same heightening circumstances. 
Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? In short, wheresoever we find strength, and in what light soever we look upon power, we shall all along observe the sublime, the concomitant of terror, and contempt, the attendant on a strength that is subservient and innoxious. The race of dogs in many of their kinds have generally a competent degree of strength and swiftness, and they exert these and other valuable qualities which they possess greatly to our convenience and pleasure. Dogs are indeed the most social, affectionate, and amiable animals of the whole brute creation. But love approaches much nearer to contempt than is commonly imagined. And accordingly, though we caress dogs, we borrow from them an appellation of the most despicable kind when we employ terms of reproach. And this appellation is the common mark of the last vileness and contempt in every language. Wolves have not more strength than several species of dogs, but on account of their unmanageable fierceness, the idea of a wolf is not despicable. It is not excluded from grand descriptions and similitudes. Thus we are affected by strength, which is natural power. The power which arises from institution in kings and commanders has the same connection with terror, Sovereigns are frequently addressed with the title of dread majesty, and it may be observed that young persons, little acquainted with the world, and who have not been used to approach men in power, are commonly struck with an awe which takes away the free use of their faculties. When I prepared my seat in the streets, says Job, the young men saw me and hid themselves. Indeed, so natural is this timidity with regard to power, and so strongly does it inhere in our constitution, that very few are able to conquer it, but by mixing much in the business of the great world, or by using no small violence to their natural dispositions. I know some people are of opinion that no awe, no degree of terror, accompanies the idea of power, and have hazarded to affirm that we can contemplate the idea of God himself without any such emotion. I purposely avoided, when I first considered this subject, to introduce the idea of that great and tremendous being as an example in an argument so light as this. Though it frequently occurred to me, not as an objection to, but as a strong confirmation of my notions in this matter, I hope, in what I am going to say, I shall avoid presumption where it is almost impossible for any mortal to speak with strict propriety. I say, then, that whilst we consider the Godhead merely as he is an object of the understanding which forms a complex idea of power, wisdom, justice, goodness, all stretched to a degree far exceeding the bounds of our comprehension, Whilst we consider the divinity in this refined and abstracted light, the imagination and passions are little or nothing affected. 
but because we are bound by the condition of our nature to ascend to these pure and intellectual ideas through the medium of sensible images, and to judge of these divine qualities by their evident acts and exertions, it becomes extremely hard to disentangle our idea with the cause from the effect by which we are led to know it. Thus, when we contemplate the deity, his attributes and their operation coming united on the mind, form a sort of sensible image, and as such are capable of affecting the imagination. Now, though in a just idea of the deity, perhaps none of his attributes are predominant, yet to our imagination his power is by far the most striking. Some reflection, some comparing, is necessary to satisfy us of his wisdom, his justice, and his goodness. To be struck with his power, it is only necessary that we should open our eyes. But whilst we contemplate so vast an object under the arm, as it were, of almighty power, and invested upon every side with omnipresence, we shrink into the minuteness of our own nature, and are, in a manner, annihilated before him. And though a consideration of his other attributes may relieve in some measure our apprehensions, yet no conviction of the justice with which it is exercised, nor the mercy with which it is tempered, can wholly remove the terror that naturally arises from a force which nothing can withstand. If we rejoice, we rejoice with trembling, and even whilst we are receiving benefits, we cannot but shudder at a power which can confer benefits of such mighty importance. When the prophet David contemplated the wonders of wisdom and power which are displayed in the economy of man, he seems to be struck with a sort of divine horror, and cries out, Fearfully and wonderfully am I made. A heathen poet has a sentiment of a similar nature. Horace looks upon it as the last effort of philosophical fortitude to behold without terror and amazement this immense and glorious fabric of the universe. Hunc solum et stellas et decadentia certis tempora momentis sunt qui formidine nulla imbuti spectent. Lucretius is a poet not to be suspected of giving way to superstitious terrors. Yet, when he supposes the whole mechanism of nature laid open by the master of his philosophy, his transport on this magnificent view, which he has represented in the colors of such bold and lively poetry, is overcast with a shade of secret dread and horror. His ibi me rebus quidam divina voluptas percipit atque horror quod sic natura tua vi tam manifesta patens ex omni parte protecta est. But the scripture alone can supply ideas answerable to the majesty of this subject. In the scripture, wherever God is represented as appearing or speaking, everything terrible in nature is called up to heighten the awe and solemnity of the divine presence. 
the psalms and the prophetical books are crowded with instances of this kind the earth shook says the psalmist the heavens also dropped at the presence of the lord in what is remarkable the painting preserves the same character not only when he is supposed descending to take vengeance upon the wicked but even when he exerts the like plenitude of power in acts of beneficence to mankind tremble thou earth at the presence of the lord at the presence of the god of jacob which turned the rock into standing water the flint into a fountain of waters it were endless to enumerate all the passages both in the sacred and profane writers which establish the general sentiment of mankind concerning the inseparable union of a sacred and reverential awe with our ideas of the divinity hence the common maxim primus in orabe deus fecit timor this maxim may be as i believe it is false with regard to the origin of religion the maker of the maxim saw how inseparable these ideas were without considering that the notion of some great power must be always precedent to our dread of it but this dread must necessarily follow the idea of such a power when it is once excited in the mind it is on this principle that true religion has and must have so large a mixture of salutary fear and that false religions have generally nothing else but fear to support them. Before the Christian religion had, as it were, humanized the idea of the divinity, and brought it somewhat nearer to us, and there was very little said of the love of God. The followers of Plato have something of it, and only something. The other writers of pagan antiquity, whether poets or philosophers, nothing at all and they who consider with what infinite attention by what a disregard of every perishable object through what long habits of piety and contemplation it is that any man is able to attain an entire love and devotion to the deity will easily perceive that it is not the first the most natural and the most striking effects which proceeds from that idea thus we have traced power through its several gradations unto the highest of all where our imagination is finally lost and we find terror quite throughout the progress its inseparable companion and growing along with it as far as we can possibly trace them now as power is undoubtedly a capital source of the sublime this will point out evidently from whence its energy is derived and to what class of ideas we ought to unite it. End of part two, sections one through five of A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke.